You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I find a lot of wisdom that comes from your show. You interview different people and I know you just do an overall good job and you're a blessing to recovery in general. So I want to make that very clear for the record that I love the movement that you have, what you're doing, you're saving lives and you're educating and informing people. I think that's important. I want to thank my friends at Recovery Survey for giving me the opportunity to talk to them about my recovery journey. Thank you for having me on uh, the new podcast that you just developed, which is unbelievable, Recovery Survey Podcast. I really appreciate what you're doing and, and been doing and continue doing. My guest today is named Pat Achoa. He's here to tell us about his journey from using dope on Skid Row to where he is now, where he mentors adolescents and families. He's also a part of an organization that provides clean and sober spaces for people at music festivals. Welcome to the show, Pat. My name is Pat, drug addict, alcoholic, clean and sober, 102302. Professionally, currently doing business development for an addiction program in Portland, Oregon called Slow Recovery Center. Um, I also have a eleven uh, eleven coaching, which is a case management coaching of families and individual addicts through the process and the changes of active addiction to recovery, do interventions, coaching, case management with families. Currently on the board of directors for a nonprofit called Harmonium. And we bring clean and sober tents into about 27 music festivals across the country. Uh, music festivals like Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, Outside Lands, Austin City Limits. Uh, we do all of Insomniacs, electronic music festivals, EDC, Nocturnal Wonderland, Escape from Wonderland, etc. Can you tell us a little bit about how you found recovery and what those early days looked like? Yeah, not a problem. How did I find recovery? A great question. You know, it's, um, you know, actually my first meeting, uh, a 12-step meeting, I was 11 months old. I mean, clearly I didn't have a drug problem or an alcohol problem, but my, <laughs> but my mom did. My mom was a blackout drinker. She actually had um, sex with the owner of the bar in a blackout and got pregnant. And so my mom was the kind, which I found out later on, obviously, when I got sober, but my mom was the kind of alcoholic that would get pulled over for, for a DUI, drunk driving. And when she would get pulled over, she would like jump out of the car and try to beat the cop up. And so she would get a drunk driving assault on a police officer. So she had 12 of those things. And the judge, he finally at the end was sentencing my mom to 10 to 10 years in prison a funny story uh, is that my mom, she, um, she, one of the times when she had, uh, she had a DUI and was going to court on it, but was in between the DUI and going to court. She, what she did was she met a guy in a bar who worked at a at a mortuary. So they went down to the mortuary and they filled out a death certificate and they sent it in to the court, <laughs> right? Because like, how's the judge going to expect someone if they're dead? 
And then like 30 days later, she got another DUI and had to go back in front of the same judge. And he, and he was like, he's like, can you tell me, Miss Ochoa, like, how's there a dead person in my court? And my mom was like, I don't know, bad luck, <laughs> you know? And so like, I identify that thinking so much, but my mom got sober when I was 11 months old. Um, so I literally grew up in the rooms of, of a 12 step fellowship, you know, every day of my life. I mean, I, I knew, I knew what recovery was about. I knew what addiction was about. I knew, um, I mean, I saw a woman die of this disease on my couch when I was a little kid. Uh, my mom was active member. My mom worked in treatment for 38 years before she died. So like, I, I I've known about recovery my whole life. And so like, that was my first introduction to recovery. Like I'm like weird, awkward, poopy pants kind of guy, you know, growing up, like, I'm just like naturally, like, I'm just super awkward, you know, like, I mean, I've done some, like, you know, some like Myers-Briggs testing and, and been shown that I'm introvert, you know, I mean, I can turn it on, but like, so I'm just like, I mean, I bit my nail since I was a little kid. I peed the bed till I was 10, you know, like that kind of just awkward, shame filled kid didn't really have that many friends like always on the outside looking in um like I had this idea that if I had a dad I'd know how to live life um I'm a right fielder on the baseball team right like you know what the right fielder is right like the kid that doesn't you know can't really play all that well and his the coach feels bad so he's out in right field you know it's just and like loser failure you're no good kind of mindset so like I took my first drink of alcohol at nine years old to fit in with some kids. That was it. Like, I, I mean, the day before I was telling my mom, I'll never drink. I'll never use drugs. And the day those kids pulled out a bo- that bottle of Jose Cuervo, that thought of me telling my mom that didn't even come to my mind. Like I drank cause I wanted some friends and I drank that day. And what alcohol did for me was it connected me with some people I mean, they, they were already my friends, but my perception to having no friends was that I had no friends. And so that day when I drank, I felt a part of 11. I started um, smoking weed every day. By the time I was a freshman in high school, I was drinking on the weekend, smoking weed every day. And then like I grew up and when I was going to high school, it was like 88 to 1992 and about 90 gangster rap started coming in. I don't know if you remember like Eze, NWA, Ice Cube, and those guys, right? Now remember, awkward poopy pants guy, but I got size 50 Dickies pulled all the way up, and I got a 5XL sweatshirt on, and I walk with a limp, and I start saying things like "Orale" and "What's up, homes," and uh, and I pour beer on the curb for the dead homies. And um, the truth is, is like I'm terrified and I'm full of fear, but I have big friends. And I got sarcasm is like my mode of operation to like keep people at a distance. So I like make fun of you and I pick on you and then my friends laugh and, and I'm like in the middle and I'm part of, and, and you know, and sometimes like that sarcasm, people would take offense and then they'd want to fight me. And then my friends would beat you up. And then I would just be like, yeah, what's up? You know, like alcohol and drugs gave me a sense of power that I didn't know I had and uh, gave me a, like courage to be able to like live life gave me courage to really just be able to like open my mouth and speak and tell you that things that probably weren't appropriate. And uh, by the time I was 17, mom was 16 years sober and she's like, you can't drink and use in my house. And so she kicked me out of the house at 17 and at 17 years old, like my mom's always been my hero, but at 17, when she kicked me out of the house, I grabbed my mom by the collar and I slammed her against the wall and told her to 
to F off. I hate you. Um, you're never going to see me again. And I can, I can honestly say, looking back that at 17 alcohol and drugs completely were uh, ruling my life. Cause the last thing I wanted to do is put my hands on my mom, you know, that night I went to in a house where we were getting, where we were getting loaded at and I took my first hit of crack cocaine at 17. I didn't get sober till I was 27. And when I got sober at 27, I had been living on Skid Row, downtown LA for a year and a half. I was 98 pounds, hadn't showered in six months. I was up for 21 days on methamphetamine. I prostituted. I'm a straight man, but I would prostitute myself um, to gay men in West Hollywood for one more hit of crack cocaine. I was sexually assaulted 12 times. And every time I would come to, I'd get a pint of tequila and I would get drunk. And then I'd be back at that motel knocking on the same door that I crawled out of. Yeah, October 23rd, 2002, like, I was absolutely crazy. I had built this idea, like living on Skid Row as awkward poopy pants kid. Like I, I, I found this idea that if I just said, "Hey, have you seen my friend Chris? I'm looking for Chris, man. I can't find Chris. Do you know where Chris is? Chris, Chris, Chris." And I would start screaming Chris's name. That the people on Skid Row would be like, "Dude, this guy's Looney Tunes," and they kind of would just like clear the path for me to walk through, and no one messed with me as long as I was looking for Chris. And I was just, I was, I was nightmare spent three and a half years in prison. Um, not because I'm a criminal, but because I get busted for a heroin charge, you know, nothing crazy. And when I came to with shame and guilt, remorse and isolation and fear and loneliness, the thought of getting a pint of tequila was replaced by call your mom and ask for help. I literally believe when I called my mom and asked for help, I walked into God's grace. You know, I, I'm not one that believed in God until I was 10 years. But looking back, I can tell you that that's what happened. I can relate so much to being that awkward kid trying to fit in and trying to use sarcasm to keep people away and like make jokes about people like, man, that's me too. Like I, I did those exact same things that I didn't go through like the gangster rap cholo phase, but I can definitely relate to, to what you're talking about. Yeah. I, lo I love the identification around here. Like what was there a specific event or what was it that made you reach out to your mom and call her and and realize that you needed help? I guess the first moment was in 2000. I, I grew up in the YMCA. My mom put me in the YMCA when I was a kid, and then I became a counselor in training, and then I became a counselor, and then I was like, you know, campfire director, boys unit director, assistant director of the camp, and I was a full blown drug addict, like drinking every day, smoking weed. You know, I was going to rave, so I was eating acid and showing up to camp, you know. And then I became an assistant director for an after-school program, and I was getting heroin delivered to that school and working with kids. And I was fired from that. And that was the first moment where I was like, man, the only good thing in my life was just taken away. And I went to treatment in 2000. I ended up drinking the minute, the moment I got out of, out of treatment because I was a heroin addict. I wasn't an alcoholic. And I didn't think alcohol was bad. And so then that took me two years. So I got back getting sober. But the moment this time when I got sober was, you know, I, I would prostitute myself to men. I was sexually assaulted 12 times. And like um, every time I came out of that, that motel, I'm sexually assaulted. I would be um, making plans of how this time was going to be different. Right. Like how I was going to continue to drink and use drugs, but not end up back at the motel. Like I was like obsessed on making it work without the consequences. 
And every time I would come to just a little bit more broken, a little bit more broken, a little bit more broken. And those ideas of I was going to do this, I was going to do that. I was going to, you know, no more crack cocaine, alcohol, no more heroin, alcohol, no more methamphetamine, alcohol, just smoke weed, back drinking, back doing the drugs. And every time I was, it was just breaking down the ego, breaking down the ego until I was at that point where I came to like one more time in the same position, looking at this guy, knowing I just sold myself for, for drugs. Um, I was trying to get to the Salvation Army and they said, you have to pee clean in order to get in here. And I said, man, I'm going to stay on these steps because I can't leave. If I leave, I know I'm going to get loaded. And day two into a three-day kick on those stairs, that, that guy said to me, you want to get a beer? And I was like, yeah. And then all of a sudden I came two days later with the, with the same feelings of shame, guilt, remorse, isolation, and fear. But in that moment of coming to that day, like I think, I think that the mind was broken enough for the spirit to shine because it was like that little flicker of flame that was left in my spirit spoke, you know, and I'm a, I'm a believer that God is love and intuition for me. And that spirit is love through the process of recovery. It's been about healing spirit, but that little bit of spirit, what that was like left was just an internal voice that said, ask for help. I didn't know that was going to be the end. I didn't know it at the time that like that was the moment. But 17 years sober, looking back, like that was the moment. I can relate to what you shared there too, man. I mean, my journey's a little bit different. I I wasn't familiar with 12-step fellowships when I came around. Um, but I definitely went in with the mindset of like, I want the consequences of my using to go away, but I want to continue to use. And I went in thinking that maybe the people in the rooms had figured out had figured out a way to use without the consequences figured out a way to to use successfully and so i definitely went in with that mindset of i wasn't going to stop using i was just going to figure out a way to do it better not to deal with the consequences enough to feel like the shame and remorse and the guilt and all those feelings that came along with the drug use right so yeah, yeah i guess it, i guess it was a solution to the problem Looking back, I mean, now I know that it was a solution to the problem uh, for me. You know, for one, the shame and the guilt, like it took all that away in order for me to continue to get loaded. The mind of the loser, failure, you're no good, quieted that voice. The resentments of having, you know, no dad in my life, not feeling loved loved by my dad, uh, my mom who was shut down emotionally and mentally, and that pain of not connecting, like it took, it took all that resentment and fear. I mean, all that like loneliness away. Um, it connected me to groups of people who were getting loaded, like stopping wasn't an option for me. In spite of the consequences, like I completely forget what the consequences were an hour ago. Yeah. We're, we're definitely uh, slow learners and fast forgetters. Yeah, fast forgetters, that's for sure. And I'm a real knucklehead is what I really am. It's like it's like adolescence. You know what I mean? Like um it's just like we I, I personally stopped growing at twelve and thirteen years old, like that adolescent stage of like having all the answers, proving everyone that they're wrong and I'm right. Emotions like through the roof, up and down, you know, still throwing temper tantrums when I don't get what I want. 
at you know 12 or 13 years old that's you know acceptable you know when i got sober at 27 no longer attractive <laughs> so you kind of gave us a little bit of a little bit of your backstory what does your life look like now you said you have was it 17 years yeah 17 years fast forward to what it's like today man it's been so much in between like when i got sober man I have zero living skills you know what i'm saying like i had no social skills i i didn't respect boundaries like i was an adolescent really and i've I've had to learn to grow up you know i don't think recovery is about not using you know not drinking i think i think recovery is about a process of growing up and i've had to, i've had to learn um how to grow up around here you know i don't act out well in as many temper tantrums as I did when I first got sober, I can still get my feeling hurt, you know, my feet or, or feeling somehow. Yeah. I'm a really sensitive guy, you know, but I've learned that I don't have to react as much. I don't have to react to, to what hurts my feelings. Like there's other solutions that I've been able to learn how to implement in my life. I didn't know how to, how to work. You know, I went back to school. I didn't know how to go back to school. I have a ninth grade education. I was so terrified the first semester that, that I dropped out. And when, you know, an old timer in my life, he said, he said, you need to sign back up and trust in God. And so I signed back up and I trusted in God for about one week. And then I dropped out the second semester. I remember talking to him again and he just said, you just, you go to school, like you go to recovery. You know, you sit in the front and raise your hand, you know, that break and after class be a service to your, other classmates, you know, after class, thank the, thank the teacher. And so, and he said, why don't you pray before you go? And I, I went and I did that and I, I made it through school and I, I got A's. I got all A's in school and I became a counselor, worked at a, at a sober high school, created a recovery component, started working with young kids and started training therapists how to work with addicts because they were getting manipulated. <laughs> and so I started to learn how to work with therapists on a mental health aspect and what, you know, that it, there was more to addiction, not just drug use, that there's some mental health stuff going on. So I learned about that. And I went to a, uh, uh, adolescent treatment center and created their recovery component there. And I opened up their boy's house and thriving in my career. And and I stood up for some ethical stuff and was fired from that company and and, and getting fired and, and going into a depression and realizing that my career was my identity and always had a dream to open up my own program. And I met with a friend and we wrote a business plan and we, we created an adolescent transitional living home and that partnership fell apart and I was fired and pushed out of the partnership and I went into another depression, you know, like, how is God doing this to me? And, and then uh, I created 11-11 coaching and started doing some work with some, in, some kids individually. And, and then uh, I had an attorney that was backing up that partnership. And, and the day my mom died on January 10th of 2018, the attorney told me she ripped me off and the whole company, my 11-11 coaching went to the side. So I was just super depressed and, you know, did some therapy on my mom and the grief. And what's happened is um, 
I had done an ancestry DNA and I got in touch with my dad's side of the family right before my mom died. And I went from an only child and a single parent to my mom dying and finding out I had six brothers and sisters on my dad's side and getting in touch with my dad's brothers and sisters and then their kids. So my cousins and I went back for a family reunion and like just got in touch with a part of me that was completely a void my whole life. And like what's happened is that like I'm completely open to relationships and possibilities from doing the work of making amends and continuing to do the next right indicated step. That right before my mom died, like all my mom wanted me to do is get in the middle of recovery and help people. And literally all the way into the day my mom died, like I did that. And uh, my mom hugged me on her on the hospice bed and told me how proud she was of me and, and that she loved me. And, you know, I promised to carry on my mom's legacy from that point. And like what, how much opportunity professionally has come to me. You know, I wrote a book that I'm in the middle of editing working for you know an amazing addiction program in portland oregon like i'm coaching families i just have the opportunity today to be of sir of maximum service wherever i go you know i was always taught that when anyone asks for help you help them right not just in, in the rooms but wherever you go i'll share a story with you i was speaking at a state I came back and I had my son halftime 50-50, picked him up on a Sunday and we were going, I was just kind of cranky and tired and traveling all day. I was just like, wanted to get home and, and my son's, you know, he wants my attention. He's been gone away from me for five days. I go get some food and we pull into my apartment complex and we're getting out of the car and my, my son's, you know, he's shy and timid. And as we're getting out of this car, this girl's screaming and she's punching car windows and she's F this and F that and and she comes walking up to us, and I tell my son, I go, hey, go inside, and I'll be in there in a minute. And I walked, I, I started talking to her, and she had a knife in her hand, and she had cuts all up and down her arms. And and I, I started talking to her, and she wanted to use my phone, and I, I manipulated the knife from her. And, and she called her dad, and she was asking for help, and, and she said, hey, my dad wants to talk to you. And her dad gets on the phone with me, and her dad says, you know, I don't know you, but He's like, it's going to take me an hour to get to your house. Can you take my daughter inside and just watch over her? You know, and I said a prayer, right? Because I got a responsibility to keep my son safe. And I said a prayer and, and, and the message that I got was to take care of this, this human being. And so I took her in my house and I cleaned her up and cleaned her arms off. And I said, I'll be right back. I'm going to go see my son. And, and, and I walked out to see my son and my son had dished out the dinner plates into three plates, one for me, one for him and one for the girl. And and my son was 10 at the time. And he says, dad, do you, do you think that she wants to eat? And I said, I, I don't know. Why don't you go ask her? And so he walked into the bathroom where she was and she was crying. And my, and I was in the, I was in the dining area and, and I popped my head around the corner and, and he said to her, he said, every time that I'm sad, he said, I, I, is I pray. And he said, will, will you pray with me? And she said, yeah. And he was holding her hands and he was praying and and right when he said amen, he said, every time I get done praying, I, I meditate. He's like, will you meditate with me? And, and she's like, yeah. I mean, she's holding his hands. I'm just sitting there thinking, man, she's stuck. She doesn't know where to go. She has to meditate, you know. 
and I just started to cry, man, because here's my 10 year old son and, and he's he's like breathing God in and he's breathing fear out and he's breathing God in and he's breathing, breathing sadness out with this girl. And he came over and we sat down and, and we said our prayers before the before the meal, like we always do. And he thanked God for bringing this girl into into our lives that we got the opportunity to be a service to this girl. And and we said, amen. And, and, and all of a sudden her dad called and, and my son said, hey, can I go with you? And, and we walked out to, with her to her dad and her dad pulled up with like six like gangster chola dudes tattooed all the way down. And my 10 year old son walked up right in front of me and he put his hand out and he said, hi, my name's Eden. And he said, we believe that God brought your daughter into our life. And we believe that God's God's got her in the palm of his hands. And, and we just thank, thank God for, for bringing her into our lives. And, and uh, and we let her go, you know, and I was just like, uh, there's so much to that story, right? Because if I'm, if I remain like in my selfishness and my self-centeredness, I would have missed the opportunity. But because I was taught to be of service and recovery, I put my hand out to her, praying, leaning into the power, which is God, helping this individual, right? And then what happens is I get to see the principles that I was taught that I passed on to my kid in action. Right. And I'm just sitting there like blown away by the example because the the men in my life who taught me the principles that I get to implement those principles in my life. And then my son gets to use those principles to add them to someone else's life for her life to have whatever. I don't know what happened to her, but there was some light in that moment in her life. Right. And we don't know where that goes from there, like the ripple effect. You know, and, uh, you know, selfish and self-centered walked in the rooms of recovery, right? And through the example of men in my life who taught me principles, right? Like I get to live a principled life. My life today just looks like um, real simple. How can I be of service to you? What is it that I can do for you? Because I'm a firm believer that when I'm of service to someone else, I step out of the way of my problems to allow God to come in and take care of my problems. You know, every, every time I was fired, every time I was in depression, right? Like God took care of me financially, took care of me mentally, took care of me emotionally. I live today like a 100% a free man. Like I'm a hundred percent free today. I love my life, dude. Like honestly, like it might be a controversial thing, but COVID has like nothing on me. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I am, I, I am able to go to the most sordid spots. You know, I was in Skid Row last night. I live my life to the fullest. You know, I abide by the rules. I'm a rule follower. So I abide by the guidelines and I do what I need to do to take care of me. But I'm a firm believer that that if I continue to be of service to others, God will take care of me. Uh, whether I get COVID or I don't get COVID or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like God will take care of me. I'm free. I don't own amends. I don't owe anything to anybody today. That if I die, then I know it's God's time. So that's kind of where I'm living today, how I'm living today. I think I answered your question. Maybe I went too long, but. No, that was great, man. It's just beautiful to hear how you're actually living the program and, and taking those principles that you've learned and, and putting them into application. Because I think, that's yeah. a, I think that's a struggle for a lot of people. Like I can have a lot of book knowledge. I can quote passages out of the book, but actually taking it and applying it in my life and actually living it outside of the rooms can be, yeah. a, can be a challenge at times. And man, it sounds like you're doing that. And I think, I mean, that that's what real recovery is, is, is being able to actually 
learn these principles and then be able to apply them into our lives and, and live this new way of life and not just come in there and, and fake it. And you know, one of the things my sponsor always says is like, man, you need to share the good and the bad times. Um, don't just share the good. Cause then people get this false idea of what recovery is. And, you know, just because we're clean or sober or however you want to phrase it, doesn't mean that we aren't going to face hardships and that we aren't going to go through difficult things in our lives, but we can manage those. We can manage to get through those things without having to pick up another old timer from my group always says for every problem that I face, there's a spiritual principle that I can apply to that situation. Yeah. Like the first time he said that it just blew my mind is like, man, like it really got me thinking like what spiritual principles do I need to learn to apply in these different areas and in these different situations that I encounter and how do I live out this program? How do I live out this new way of life? Mm. Yeah. So beautiful. Such a gift, such a gift. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I didn't, I had nothing when I got here and no self-esteem, no self-worth, no, nothing physically came in with the clothes on my back, which I don't even know if they were, I mean, they were, I mean, they, they went right in the trash. You know, today I live, I have uh, everything I want. I have everything I need. But like most importantly, like I have peace of mind. Like I mean, I got some, you know, some issues that arose this morning, and uh, and like I don't have to respond. Like I know the minute I respond, right, my peace of mind goes out the window. The way other people live is none of my business. Truly, like, but the minute I respond, then I play into their business and then it becomes my business and then I become you know restless irritable and discontent if I if I go restless irritable and discontent it leads to anger and then I need relief I need relief man and and I'm not willing to engage in, in the chaos and it's unneeded my opinion does not matter <laughs> my relationship with God and how I serve is what matters today how can I serve you? That's why you reached out. I'm like, dude, let's do this. Who knows where it's, who, who's going to be hear it and who may be touched by it. But if you and I can touch one suffering, you know, whether they're new, whether they're, you know, old, you know, it, you know, a lot of years, no year, whatever, like who knows if someone stumbles on us, you know, if we, if you and I could come together to serve, to help one person, then we fulfilled what we're doing. And there's, you know, there are no, no coincidence that you and I are here. We don't even know each other. You're in Dallas. I'm in California. God brought us together. Here we are. And that's a gift, man. Absolutely. And, and one of the things you were talking about that it made me think of uh, powerlessness. And, you know, it took me a really long time to grasp the concept of powerlessness and and realize just how little control I have over things. Cause that was, that was one of the things when I came in the rooms, like I was trying to control every situation. I was trying to control the outcome. I was trying to control the people. And I didn't realize that I don't have any control over those things, you know, cause I didn't have a higher power in my life. I was my own higher power and you know, me and, and drugs. That was like a big piece for me is realizing like, all I can do is my part. I can't control the outcome. I can't control what you do, what you say, how you act. Like, all I can do is be responsible for me and try to act and behave in this new way that I've, this new way of life that I've been introduced to and try to try to act on spiritual principles and not, not try to control the outcome and just 
put my faith yeah. and trust in that higher power that he's got my best interest in mind and that, you know, he's taking care of me this long. He'll continue to take care of me. Right. Amen. Yeah. He didn't bring, he didn't bring us this far to drop us on our butt. Now as firm of a believer today, I am in God. It's a, it's a relationship that, that really ebbs and flows, right? Like some days I feel super connected and some days I just feel like, man, really? Like, is, is there, it's like a faith, you know, confident trust born of experience is what faith is for me, right? I have to sometimes lean into my experience to go, oh yeah, this experience, that experience, this experience, that experience, God was there the whole time. Oh, okay. God's got this one. Sometimes I'm just like, oh, I got the faith, you know what I mean? And then, but there's some days where I have to lean into my experience to see, because I, you know, I'm a human being. I need evidence. I need facts. You know, if I always lived in faith, I'd be a little worried about myself because, you know, I'm, I'm a human. God gave me will. And that will is to wake up in the morning, lean into God, help his kids show up, work professionally to provide for my family, be able to, you know, take care of whatever it is so that I can continue to help others. But in that, I get afraid. I don't have to use the character defects as much as I used to in order to block the fear, mask the fear, whatever it is. Like I, I'm able to be um, vulnerable, open and lean into the power rather than lean into those character defects today. But I do, you know, I am a human man. I, I do get afraid. I do question, man, am I going to get through this one? Wow. This seems overwhelming. Am I going to get through this one? I like what you touched on about being able to look back on those previous experiences. Cause I think for me, that's where that reassurance that my higher power has me comes from because in, when I'm in the middle of it, it's really difficult from like you were talking about, like I, the ebb and the flow, like it's hard for me to see it when I'm in the middle of it, but I can look back at all these experiences from the past as evidence that my, that, you know, I'm in the care of my higher power. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, interesting time that our world is in on many different levels and, you know, social media, how fast technology has, you know, the, the growth of technology is, is forcing Americans into so much, well, the world into so much change as human beings. You know, before the Internet, human beings weren't acting and reacting like they are today. It's just an interesting time to really tap into the principles right to really tap into the morals and values that i have as a human being and, and to really tap into how can i be of love and service right like my opinion doesn't matter my opinion isn't going to change anything but how can i be of love and service to those around me though i may not agree with what i see um, on social media it's a challenge, man, and I'm great. I'm grateful for uh, having no opinion on on it, on those issues, you know. But it's one more time, like I get to lean into that power, which I expressed earlier as love and intuition. You know, and my intuition is the guide. It's always guided me. My intuition's always said, "Pat, dude, go right," and I'm like, "I'm going left." intuition's like don't push the send button you know what i mean i'm like send you know intuition says uh, is, is your opinion really needed ah uh, yes uh, you know and i go the opposite direction 
you know, I've had intuition my whole life. I was born. I believe that intuition was a gift that we were given. It was the direct channel to the source and learning, you know, just more opportunity to be able to lean into that intuition um, rather than into the mind, which is self to really do what, what God wants me to do in life. Um, it's been, it's been a real gift to be able to, to be able to do, but you know, here we are in the middle of it all. You brought up kind of the, the times we're living in now. And, and one of the things that comes to my mind, just from the whole recovering addict point of view is just how isolating this whole COVID situation feels. I mean, I know we have like online meetings with zoom and that kind of stuff, but yeah. It still feels very isolated, and and I know even for me with with five and a half years, I still find myself like struggling. Like man, I I feel alone. I feel depressed. I feel you know all these different things, and it's like man, I don't have a reason to be depressed. Like you know, I'm not alone. Like there's people in my life, but I I still miss that connection of seeing my home group members on a regular basis, and like it just feels different, and it, it it's definitely a weird time, man. Yeah, it is. It is, And you know, I mean, I have a spiritual malady, man. I got have a spiritual sickness. You know, the spiritual malady for me is, is, a, is a spiritual disconnect. And if I look back through the work I've been able to do is as a kid, right. I, I had that since I was born, right. I've always felt disconnected from you or others. I've always felt disconnected from God. My, my grandma took me to church you know, she, I listened to the same message and the same music and my, my grandma was hooting and hollering and hallelujah. And, and she was dancing and she had her arms up and I, and internally I thought, man, what's wrong with me? Like, why don't I feel that same thing my grandma feels? And the spiritual malady for me is that is a spiritual disconnect from self. And so I lived that way and I had a spiritual experience when I got loaded, right? It connected me to everything around me, spiritually, physically, and with self. And then, you know, we get sober. And so now you remove it. And here I am back at that same, that same spiritual malady. Um, and then I, I, I get some principles. And, and I'll tell you what really lacked for me a long time in my recovery was meditation. You know, addiction is, is progressive, whether I'm drinking and using or not, which means my spiritual life needs to continue to progress. And if my spiritual life, and I don't mean just doing the prayers, I'm, you know, continually seeking the depths of spirituality, whatever, however you do that, you know, like I would pick up a random book at the bookstore and kind of read about different religions and different philosophies and different ideas. And then I started to get into meditation and doing different meditations and, and shifting things around in the meditative world. But, you know, when I started to practice a daily discipline of meditation, my meditation today is, uh, you know, I pray and I meditate for eight minutes and 46 seconds. You know, I, I thought that if George Floyd was down there for eight minutes and 46 seconds, he had no power whether he got up or not that I was going to implement that because in meditation, I always want to quit, always want to stop. It always gets too hard. And so I applied that in the meditation. But what happens is that I connect with the source, right, so that I can hear and feel connected throughout the day of what's going on for me. And here's how meditation works. So I, I pray and I meditate. And it's the middle of the COVID situation, right? And then the fear part of it all. When we were in that like super fear, like it's never going to end, buy all the groceries, stock up, we're dying. And like I met a sponsee and his, and his wife and, and they have a little baby named Shiloh. And 
He's just turned two. And Shiloh was born without functioning kidneys. He's on dialysis for like 12 hours a day at home. They have to hook him up to dialysis. And he's on the list for a, a kidney. And he's, he's been in Chalk Hospital, like almost died, septic. And God has kept him around. This little kid is like a little light, man. He blows me away. And where I eat sometimes is, is over by Chalk Hospital. And, and so they met me at Chalk Hospital. And I was like, wait a second. Like, why are you guys meeting me? Like little Shiloh, man, he could get, he catches a virus. He's dead for sure. And they said something to me that was super profound. They, they said, Pat, like our, since he's been born, we've had to continually take calculated risks in order to live life. And for us, it's important for us to meet with you. We wear the mask. We clean our hands all the time. They've had these guidelines with COVID. They've had the same guidelines. They don't wear a mask around. They do now because it's the guidelines for COVID. But with the viruses with this kid, he could catch any cold and end up dead. It, because of meditation, right, be, being connected to the source, I could hear the message. And so for me, what I started to do is I started to take care of myself, which is what we do, tender, loving care. We do that personally, right? And I take calculated risks. You know, I take calculated risks to what's important for me to feel connected, right? What is it that I have to do in order for me to feel a part of, right? If I live in fear, then I'm disconnected from the source, which is God, and then I'm living in that spiritual malady. It's an absolute doomsday. So, I, you know, like go back to just continue to lean into the power source, continue to be of service where I'm asked, you know, and take care of myself. Right. We get sober, we get clean and sober and recovery says we get we get enough self-respect and self-worth that we learn how to take care of ourselves. We continue to help others and, and uh, do what God wants us to do. We're going to be all right. My experience over the last 17 years is my life has gotten better. Every time I felt like it was falling apart, it continues to get better. I mean, it's it's mind-blowing. I've thought many times, man, this is it. I mean, this is it. And my life continues to get better. My life has gotten better in spite of COVID. You know, I've, it just it's mind-blowing. My relationships with, with family are deeper. Relationships with friends are deeper. You know, Zoom's wonky. But, man, I've been able to speak all over the world, connect with friends all over the world. You know, I got to connect with my friends. I was in Bali, speaking in Bali a couple of years, man. They, you know, they invited me back, so I get to be with them. And you know, I was in spoken Sweden, and I be able to get back with my Sweden folks and Portugal. And so it's just like, man, it's been awesome to be able to reconnect with people that you haven't seen. And you know, I heard a message on Thursday night, and the guy, he's an old timer, and he hasn't been to a meeting in five months because he. He had some collapsed lungs and he's on high powered oxygen. He can't leave the house. And because of Zoom, he's able to be back in meetings. Like, what a blessing. And so, though I want, you know, I got, I better get my wants and needs. You know, I'm going to go, go see a couple people tonight. And dude, I'm going to hug on them like nobody's business. You know what I mean? Like, it's my last hug. But the minute I can get back in the room, it's the first person I see, I'm going to hug and I ain't letting go. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Is there anything else you'd like to talk about or you want to wrap things up? Yeah, let's wrap, let's wrap things up. Uh, you're, but, you know, you're ever in California, you're, the, you're ever in Orange County, California, you got you got a place called home. I'll, I'll take you around, show you everything. Do you want to maybe shout out your website, social media, that kind of stuff? Yeah, not a problem. So um, I want to say thank you for 
allowing me to come out and, and do this thing. Uh, Instagram is one, one, one underscore coaching underscore with, with underscore Pat. Pat has two T's P A T T. That's 1111 coaching with Pat, you know, Facebook is 1111 coaching. Come hang out. We got uh, insomniac consciousness group. If you want to find uh, clean and sober tents and music festivals, you can always reach out to me. If you're going to a festival and, and, and need the support, I can help you there. Please check out www.patpattochoa.com, patochoa.com. Um, you can also check out Slow Recovery Center if you need help with addiction treatment, S-L-O-R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, slowrecoverycenter.com. If you need uh, addiction treatment help, please reach out, let me know. I'm here to support, walk you through whatever it is that you're going through. Pat, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us. Had a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. As always, guys, the links for all the social media and websites will be in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. Thanks again, Pat. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes. Hey guys, I wanted to let you know about an exciting new partnership with Broken Chains Apparel. They're a custom online shirt retailer that designs cool shirts for people in recovery. They want you to be proud of your recovery and wear it boldly. They're offering our listeners a 20% discount. All you have to do is use the promo code recovery at checkout. Go grab your shirts today at brokenchainsapparel.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at brokenchainsapparel.